Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. I wanted to let you know that this show is brought to you by my generous supporters over at Patreon.com. If you've been blessed by this show, if you appreciate what I've been doing, if you found this to be helpful to you, I want to encourage you to consider becoming a patron. You can do that by heading over to Patreon.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. When you do, you'll have the option to choose from several different support tiers. And when you do, you'll be able to gain access to exclusive content as my way of saying thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. Well, we, as you know, in Teaching Thursdays have been going through Peter Van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology. I've been in this book for a few months now, and that's not going to change anytime soon because we're going through this entire book, and we find ourselves today on page number 73. Uh, we left off our discussion last time uh, talking about how theology does not put God in a box, as it were, but actually demonstrates His glory and majesty, so much so that we find that theology is not only a good idea, but it's something that all Christians should be engaged in, something that we should care about, something that we should uh, do on a daily basis. And we, we see that same kind of theme continuing on on page number 73 in Theoretical Practical Theology. Now what we come to in this particular episode is what Peter Van Master calls the definitum of theology. Now, if you're like me, you have to look up that word because you don't know what it means. You don't know how it's different from the word definition. We'll get to Peter and Mastic's treatment of the definition of theology later on, but for today we're dealing with the definitum of theology. So the difference between definition and definitum is that definitum is the thing being identified. Definition provides the definition uh, the explanation of the thing, whereas the definitum is the thing, the thing being defined. And we find that today as theology, specifically theoretical, practical theology. If you were with us last time, you remember how we traced out what theoretical, practical means. It's the theory and the practice, the instruction, the content, and the outcome or the aftermath of that where it plays into how we live as Christians in response to the doctrine, in response to the theory. And that's why Peter Van Maastricht employs that theoretical practical as really the the banner of his entire systematic theology enterprise. And so we come today to the definitum of theology. Now this section is a little lengthy. It's almost 30 pages long. So what I've done is I've actually divided it up. I didn't want to divide this up, but it's just too much content to try to cover in one episode. So we're going to be dealing with pages number 73 through the bottom of page 80. And then, Lord willing, next time we'll finish out this discussion of what he's calling the second theorem. So what he does is he introduces the fact that theoretical practical Christian theology must be pursued. He introduces saying it this way, 
Using this very method, we will first investigate the nature and character of theology by its exact definition. Before doing so, we must set out its definitum, which is Christian theology, that is theoretical practical, which alone is to be taught among Christians. So what he's doing now is he's calling us back to so much of the content we've already dealt with from 1 Timothy. He talks about here again how doctrine is always supposed to be associated with godliness, and so the theoretical, the doctrine, is always meant to lead us to the practical, godliness in this case. And he says that the way that Paul introduces it to Timothy is by prohibiting any other way of doing theology. So theology, according to Peter Ray Maastricht, is not just a good idea to be defined as theoretical, practical, but it's that it must be because that is what Scripture teaches. He demonstrates this by saying Scripture proves this, and he cites several different passages. He cites Galatians 6, Deuteronomy 4, Revelation 22, Matthew 15, Isaiah 8. This is in the following paragraph on page 73. So what he does is he makes the argument that it's not just this little instance where Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that doctrine is supposed to be in according or in accordance with godliness. That doctrine and godliness are so closely tied together that you can't have one without the other. Uh, Peter Van Maastricht is saying this isn't just something that Paul says to Timothy here as an anomaly, but it's something that's demonstrated all throughout the Bible. He cites Paul in Galatians 6 talking about walking in accordance with the rule, which is the one true gospel, all the way back in Galatians 1. He talks about how Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12, Revelation 22, talk about the warning of going to the right or the left of God's instruction, adding to or taking away from the instruction of God. He cites the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, where he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where what Jesus seems to be doing there is associating the idea between um, the honoring of lips, the uh, agreement, the uh, reciting, the confessing of faith, of doctrine, that it should have the same response, have the uh, rightful consequence of a heart that's following after Christ. And Jesus sees a hypocrisy with the people because he says, their lips say this, they confess this, but their hearts are far from me. So Peter Van Maastricht talks about that as the fact that theoretical, practical theology is the right lens, is the right system, is the right format that the Bible introduces doctrine, introduces theology to us in the first place. Uh, he continues after this argument by citing a whole lot of scriptures. Uh, we really don't even have time to talk about all the different scriptures uh, that he gives to us throughout this little section. Uh, but he makes a, he makes several different cases. Uh, so he says, only theoretical, practical Christian theology must be pursued. That's the format. That's the structure that the Bible teaches. So that's the, how we're supposed to pursue it, theoretical, practical. He says it's proven by scripture 
It's confirmed by reasons. It's given to us. And then he talks about the name theology and starts to deal with how uh, it relates to and then doesn't relate to the world. So he's covering a lot of ground here. But if you follow uh, the logic of his thought, it's pretty it's pretty simple to follow. Uh, what I find here is that Peter Van Maastricht again and again uh, seems to be an effective communicator without going so far up in, in lofty places that it's hard for us to follow or by being so down to earth that what he says is insignificant. What I find is a really good balance, and that's one of the reasons why this book is so helpful, uh, such a good choice for us to have. So he says that this whole idea is confirmed by three reasons. Number one, the only theology worthy to offer to Christians is what belongs to the one who alone is the head of his communion. So he says it has to be tied to Christ because that's the only worthy theology that offers us a association with the one that we belong to. Let me read that again. The only theology worthy to offer to Christians is what belongs to the one who alone is the head of his communion. So he makes the argument here by saying that this theology is directly tied to Jesus Christ. And he, he cites several different passages uh, in order to demonstrate that Christian theology first comes from Christ to us. This is the message of Jesus Christ. This is the message that Christ preached, and it's the message that we are recipients and stewards of, that we must uh, seek to follow and hold fast to. Uh, number two, on the contrary, another theology or that of any other person than Christ is neither heard nor recognized by Christians. Yeah, he cites John chapter 10, says Jesus, when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, they don't follow uh, the voice of a stranger, they follow the voice of their shepherd. And so it's, it's as he says, it's self-authenticating in that way. Uh, knowing the right theology is akin to knowing the voice of our master. Uh, we understand that this truth comes from our teacher, our Savior, and we therefore won't follow after the voice of a stranger. We won't follow after the voice of a false teacher. And then number three, only his theology, that is Christ, only his theology must be pursued into whom Christians are baptized and by whose name they are called Christians. And so we have to pursue a Christian theology uh, because the theology that we're talking about directly ties us to Christ. That's the whole point of being called Christians, is that we are tied to and associated with Christ. So that's his point. It's a very simple point, but very profound that we have to establish. We're not talking about theology in general here. We're talking about Christian theology, an explicit, a very particular theology. So now he talks about the fact that theology is given. Now, what he means by this is that we are not inventing theology as humans from the ground up. This is something that is done in philosophy, where speculation about the afterlife or about the existence of God, or if God is properly called God, how many gods there are, uh, these kind of things, as he mentions later on, 
are things that are uh, dealt with and they're speculated upon by uh, philosophers. Christian theology is different because what we're talking about here is a truth that is first given to us. Uh, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Revelation, is the fact that God speaks to us. We don't reason or speak our way up to a knowledge of God. We respond to that knowledge of God and that revelation that first comes from the top down. This is a top-down interaction. Theology is given. We might say theology is revealed. Uh, what he does here is he cites how uh, nature itself testifies to the existence of God. He cites uh, probably the most uh, popular two passages in the Bible, Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1. Uh, when you read either of those chapters, you can see how the Bible speaks of uh, revelation as something that is revealed in nature, the existence of God, uh, who he is, what he is like, what he expects of us. Uh, the notion of, as he says, immortal blessedness, the immortal soul, the method of coming to God and living for him, divine worship. All of these things are revealed to us in nature. Even though they're in the realm of nature, uh, the human experience testifies to the fact that there is a God. Even though that it is experiential in that way, it still comes from God because it's his created order. Uh, it is not natural in the sense that it's outside the reality of God. It's natural in the sense that it is part of God's nature, part of God's creation, part of the created realm. All of this points to and speaks of the glory of God. Uh, he says, Not only does the universal consensus of all nations declare that a certain theology is given, but nature itself teaches that God exists and that he must be glorified, and that he in turn will be a rewarder of those who seek him the method of whose worship we proclaim in theology. He says, Nature teaches that the soul is immortal, burning to have its immortal desire for perpetual beatitude, happiness, blessedness, satisfied, and theology is believed to open the path to this satisfaction. So he says, Theology for us is something that is given to us from God. Theology is not meant to be this speculative or this academic exercise that begins to be so disassociated from the Bible and the ordinary experience of Christians. Theology is God's revelation of himself to us. It's something that God is doing from the very outset, and it's something that he has made so clear, something that is so pervasive, that even nature reveals this. And that's Peter Van Maastricht's point is that this is so part of the fabric of reality that it's not something that we can decide to disassociate ourselves from or run away from or be absent from. This is something that is part of the human experience. So now he talks about theology, specifically the term. So here's the definitum, the term theology itself. This might surprise uh, many people. This might come as a shock. <laughs> this might even make people feel a little uh, uncomfortable. But he says uh, very clearly, without no, with, with no hesitation whatsoever, 
He says, as to the origin of the term theology, it is without a doubt owed to the pagans. <laughs> so, even though we have so far seen Peter Van Maastricht argue for the importance of theology, of dealing with the fine points of theology, not just in general, but very specifically, very concretely, uh, he you might expect that he, what he's going to do is try to redeem the word and maybe even argue that the word has its origin in Christianity or even Judaism in the Old Testament. But what he does is say, yeah, the pagans came up with that word. The pagans used that word first. Uh, the, all the ungodly nations, this word is kind of their idea to begin with. And that might be surprising because you might think that it totally destroys all of the groundwork that he's been laying so far. Why should we care about theology? Because it seems like theology is so speculative and it leads us away from the uh, simplicity of Christianity. Now, you might expect that he says, well, actually, the word has its origin in Christianity, but he does the exact opposite. Uh, he, he says that it's actually founded upon uh, all of these different pagans. And so he cites uh, different ones, such as Pythagoras and others. Uh, talking about, he says, on page 75, these pagans call those who discourse about God theologians. What they discuss as theological matters and the science of those matters, theology. And then he says that these uh, theologians, uh, you can see some interaction and commentary on them in the writings of Aristotle and even Clement of Alexandria. But this doesn't mean that the word theology is therefore surrendered to paganism. It's not as if this word, because it's used by the ungodly, is an ungodly word. In fact, what he argues here is that the whole idea of discourse about God, discussing those things as theological matters, and calling it this, as a science, calling it theology, he says this actually uh, is a great way to describe what the Bible talks about. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term theology, he says the terms ingredients, God and word, also occur in combination in the scriptures throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says it is designated such because it is not only speech about God, but speech that proceeds from God. So think about that whole idea we just talked about earlier, that uh, theology is something that is given to us. It's revelation. It's given from God to us. It comes from the top down. That manner of speaking, that orientation of theology, makes it to where theology as a term actually is utilized best by Christianity because we, unlike other religions, unlike the speculative theology that the philosophers were doing and the pagans were doing, we testify that we're not only engaged with speech about God, but we're engaged with the speech that proceeds from God. Peter Van Maastricht cites 2 Peter 1.20 as an example of this and even talks about uh, other instances such as Revelation 19 and uh, 1 Peter 4, Romans 3, all of these 
are great examples of how theology is probably the best way we could describe what the Bible is comprised of. He says if we want to talk about synonyms here, we could look to the Old Testament, we're on page 76. Synonyms uh, in the Old Testament refers to what we would call theology, what we mean by theology, as the wisdom of God, legal knowledge, the study of the law, the wisdom of God, the fear of God, the work of God, service, worship, the oracles of God, godliness, and then going into the New Testament, the pattern of sound words, the sound words of Christ, the way, and then he says even from the Latin fathers, religion, or rereading, or binding fast. Now, what I've just done in that very brief paragraph that I just summarized is skipped over all of the scripture citations that Peter Van Maastricht uses. Now, about half of this paragraph is uh, a whole lot of scripture references. Uh, I won't even name all of them, but I mean, you got Exodus 12, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 6, Acts 24, on and on and on I could go. What Peter Van Maastricht is trying to do here is show us that theology, even though the word itself, as a Greek term, isn't explicitly mentioned in the New Testament as a proper term or the Old Testament, is that the the subject matter, the substance, the essence of what theology is, is all over the place from the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way to the end of the New Testament in Revelation. Uh, Then he says that this theology is Christian theology. So he kind of uh, goes back to what he's already said previously. He says the task at hand for us is not to consider bare theology, so theology in general, but rather to consider specifically Christian theology. This sort of theology is called revealed theology. It's been revealed by him. Jesus Christ, and it is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ utilized again and again in the Bible. In this designation is included whatever is theological, whether it is made known to us by pure divine inspiration or is taught additionally by nature, though it already is present in Scripture. For natural theology does not include anything that Scripture does not include. Now, Surprisingly, this section of the chapter, uh, you see this pattern. We'll, we'll see it in our study right now. We'll also see it next time we're together. Is that interaction between natural and special revelation. Uh, what Peter Van Maastricht here calls the difference between uh, revealed theology and natural theology. These terms are kind of used interchangeably. Today, the argument is described by natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation meaning uh, how God is revealed to us in nature. Examples of that are what Psalm 19 talks about, what Romans 1 talks about. Special revelation, on the other hand, are things that are not revealed in nature, but things that are revealed specially. Uh, i.e. the Bible, such as what we must do in order to be saved, the 
atonement of Christ, what he has done on the cross, what the significance of his resurrection from the dead is. These are not things that we can look outside our window and come to a conclusion of. Uh, these are things that God must teach to us and must reveal to us, especially in his scriptures, in the word of God, in the Bible. But by way of fascination, uh, Peter Van Maastricht brings the two together in agreement, natural and special revelation. The argument today is whether it's even appropriate to have what we might call natural revelation, or is that even revelation? Should we just call it nature and then call special revelation revelation? Or does one supersede the other? Uh, does one operate in isolation to the other, or do they need one another in order to operate? Peter Maastricht puts it this way, and he, it really is not even what he's dealing with primarily, but he just inserts a really helpful sentence here that kind of answers the question from his perspective. He says, natural theology does not include anything that scripture does not include. We might turn that the other way around. Uh, scripture, or in this case, special revelation, does include things that natural theology doesn't. But natural theology does not include anything that scripture doesn't also include. The example being Psalm 19 and Romans 1. It's fascinating that God reveals himself to us in nature, but the place that we go in order to see that, in order to understand that, is the Bible. The Bible actually offers a commentary on natural revelation. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, that God reveals himself in nature so that men are without excuse. Uh, his divine attributes, his eternal power, all of these things are shown to us in nature so that we cannot look and say, there is no God. We know that there is a God. It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's not that the facts are not upon us. It's that we want to suppress that truth as Paul says. But again, we know that through nature. We know that through our own experience. Uh, but we have a divine commentary, commentary on that and an explanation of that in Scripture. Or as Peter Van Maastricht puts it, natural theology does not include anything that Scripture does not include. So he says, Christian theology does not exclude natural theology, though. He says, Revealed theology does not exclude natural theology, but includes it just as a larger quantity includes a smaller one. So what he's saying here is it's a both and. It's not an either or battle. It's not that one is supreme over the other, um, because even special revelation, though it is supreme if we want to pick one or the other, certainly special revelation is more supreme than natural. He says, Natural revelation is still included in what we're talking about when we talk about special revelation. Uh, he says, just as a larger quantity includes a smaller one. Therefore, just as revealed theology is summed up as those matters that must be believed and those that must be done, so there you have theoretical and practical. Theoretical must be believed, practical must be done. Natural theology, which displays nothing but bits and pieces of revealed theology, consists in things that must be known 
in things that must be done. So he see what he's doing is he's showing us the interaction between the two and that natural revelation or natural theology does not come up against special revelation by way of opposition. Instead, they agree with one another. So he says what we have here in this appreciation of natural theology alongside special revelation or revealed theology, we have a fourfold use and a threefold abuse. He says the fourfold use of this is number one, it has to do with God, who by means of it renders the impious without excuse. Think about Romans 1. What is the function, what's the use of natural theology? Well, it demonstrates the existence of God to the degree that all of us are without excuse if we want to cry atheist or agnostic. Number two, the second has to do with pagans and atheists who are most powerfully refuted by it. It says we can point to natural theology, the created order, as a way to refute pagans and atheists. Number three, he says the third has to do with revealed theology, with at least with regard to us, is confirmed to an amazing degree when we discover that it agrees completely with natural theology. So he says the role of natural theology is to confirm revealed theology. The role of natural revelation is to confirm special revelation because when we see that the two agree, it elevates our appreciation of special revelation and so that we're more prone to hang on every word of God. And then number four, it has to do with us who root ourselves chiefly in the recognition of revealed truth, that we discern discern that nature itself applauds it. And this is so even in our pursuit of the good when nature itself calls us in the same direction as revelation. Uh, maybe a prime example of this is that we know based on natural revelation, based on the human experience, that murder is sinful. We know that. Uh, we have, even during uh, this particular time, uh, when any war is uh, brought on the world stage, on social media, all of the news anchors talking about uh, war crimes and the atrocities that are associated with wars, there is no argument being made about, well, there's no such thing as God, so murder doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, the exact opposite is true. Even though uh, the world as a whole uh, will deny the existence of God, they will go in favor of things like evolution and so on and so forth, uh, they will still appeal to morality, or they appeal to morality based on the human experience we all know and we all understand because we have the law of God written on our hearts. We have a conscience and we understand the sinfulness of something like murder. But when we go to the special revelation, the revealed theology in the Bible and come to understand that 
uh, by way of what God has to actually say about it, then, as he says here, we find that nature itself calls us in the same direction as Revelation. So again, Peter Van Maastricht is talking about how the two uh, agree with one another. <laughs> we won't find that what God says is out of touch with reality. And we will find that the human experience actually uh, testifies to the truthfulness and the goodness of what it is that God says to us in special revelation. And what that does is it bolsters our faith. It, it uh, builds up our assurance in what it is that God has to say. Uh, so he, then he says, in contrast to that fourfold use or the four benefits, we might say, uh, now let's talk about a threefold abuse or the th maybe we could call it the three pitfalls that, that come with uh, doing this. He says, uh, number one, there's a pitfall that happens. There's an abuse that happens when natural theology replaces revealed theology as the foundation and norm. Thus, the mistress is subjugated to her handmaiden when the latter ought to be directed by the former. Number two, when a kind of natural theology is devised that suffices for salvation, even though no hope of salvation is revealed outside of Christ. And number three, when some kind of common theology is devised by which everyone, even apart from Christ and faith in him, can be saved by the help of reason and nature only. So he basically says there's an abuse that happens when natural theology uh, supplants uh, revealed theology. This can happen by emphasizing one over the other. This can happen by saying that we know everything there is to know about God and living for him and even being saved by natural revelation. In other words, it's a gravitation away from the Word of God and saying that, well, that's sufficient. All we need is, is our own experience, and we're fine. And then he says uh, that, that third one, when theology is brought down to such a common level that it loses uh, its Christian explicitness. Um, the explicit Christian element, uh, the founded upon Jesus Christ, the in accordance with the scriptures, when all that is taken away from theology and presented as a bare theology that can be kind of uh, a kind of syncretism where all religions and all peoples of the world, just a moral enterprise, when that happens, we've abused natural theology uh, quite a bit. Uh, so his final point that he gives is that uh, this must be theoretical, practical. He reemphasizes the things that he's already talked about and things that we dealt with uh, to a high degree last time on the episode. But maybe it would just be sufficient to say uh, what he begins with here. He says, a Christian theology is required that embraces Christ and is theoretical, practical. That is to say, it is not theoretical only, resting on a contemplation of the truth, nor practical only, considering the knowledge of the truth to be indifferent. So if we emphasize just the theory, we're 
on a collision course. If we emphasize just the practice, we're on a collision course because both of those take us away from Christ. But when the two are married together, then we find that we're walking in accord with Christ himself, and therefore we have a true Christian theology. And that is to say, a theology that is theoretical and practical, sweetly complying together, just like natural revelation and special revelation sweetly comply together. Well, that pretty much wraps things up for this episode. I wanted to maybe stop here before trying to walk through the rest of what he has to say very quickly. But we'll pick things up on page number 80, where we deal with what he calls the elinctic part of this whole argument. And we'll work our way through page 80 all the way to the end of this section on page 98. So we're still dealing with the definitum of theology uh, on next episode, and we'll finish that up. Uh, But I hope that this has been an, an interesting and helpful conversation for you. I hope that you can see that when we start to commit ourselves to theology, uh, we find ourselves in some ways branching out, and then we find ourselves in other ways digging down really deep beneath something that we didn't under that we didn't know had such a vast foundation underneath it. So there's breadth and depth to the study of theology. But Peter Van Maastricht is going to walk us through it uh, very carefully and very exhaustively. And so I hope that you have been blessed so far by this. And I can't wait for another episode uh, to be alongside you again in this book, Theoretical Practical Theology. There's still time to get a copy. You'll find a link in the description of this episode below. But I will see you on another episode real soon. Take care.